You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 38 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Leah and I are excited to be talking with um, board member Jennifer Homendy. And for the first time on the podcast, Tim DePape, a railroad accident investigator from the Office of Railroad Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Investigations. Today, we're going to be talking about everything PTC related as we approach um, the upcoming deadline in just really a couple of weeks from now. Um, and we'll, we're also talking about this important issue as we approach some significant anniversaries of some rail crashes that have been investigated by NTSB. We have the 30th anniversary of the December 12th, 1990 Boston, Massachusetts um, investigation um, and the December 13th investigation of a collision in Pacific, Missouri. And then also we are approaching the anniversary of the December 18th DuPont, Washington crash. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Welcome back, member Hamidi, and welcome, Tim. We're very happy to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, as we always do, uh, before we get into the big discussion, we have an opportunity for our guests to share a little bit about their background. Uh, member Hamidi, we are happy to have you back here on the podcast for the fourth time. Um, we had you on, uh, we really got to know you more on our earlier episodes. We've had you on episode 20, episode 27, and episode 30. So for all of our listeners who may not have caught those episodes, be sure to go back and listen to those and hear all about Member Hamandi's background. But today, since we're going to be talking uh, solely about positive train control and rail safety, uh, we'd like to you to share a little bit about how you developed such a passion for rail safety and rail safety advocacy. Yeah, um, I certainly didn't plan on it. Um, a long time ago, when I started my career, I, I worked with rail labor at the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO for a number of years, uh, working on rail safety uh, and protecting workers, worker safety, and then went on to work with the Teamsters, who also represent a number of rail workers. And then uh, in 2004, con then Congressman, later Chairman Obistar uh, from Minnesota hired me as the staff director for the Subcommittee on Railroads, Pipelines, and Hazardous Materials, which really, which had jurisdiction over all of rail safety uh, for the nation. Awesome. And so in total, how many years would you say you have experience with rail safety? 24 years. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. And Tim, this is your first time joining us on the Behind the Scene at NTSB podcast. Would you share with us and our listeners a bit about your background and how long you've been with the NTSB and your role in rail pipeline and hazardous materials? Sure. Um, I hired uh, as an assistant signalman in 1976 on the Chicago Northwestern. I worked various roles while I was on the railroad. I worked as a signalman, a signal maintainer, a signal inspector. Um, my job encompassed working on all grade crossing signal systems, testing them. And then I went, uh, after 17 years in the field, I went to the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen and um, I worked as an arbitration writer I did publications, and but I spent the majority of my time as director of research working on rail safety issues for 
men and women that do that work. And while doing that, testified in Congress on uh, new technology, grade crossings. That's when I first got exposure to the National Transportation Safety Board because they would be at a lot of the same uh, congressional hearings that I was at. And then I came to the Safety Board 13 years ago. I was hired as a rail, railroad accident investigator specializing in positive train control and signal systems. And uh, I've worked as uh, a signal group chairman and an investigator in charge on approximately 30 accidents in my career. Wow. Amongst them, some of the most high-profile ones we've had, like my first major accident was uh, out in California when we had a head-on collision between a Metrolink train and a freight train, but uh, had a good career here, and I've enjoyed my time here. And thanks Great. for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us. And uh, Tim, you are joining us from the Chicago region, correct? That and area of the country? That is correct, yes. Yeah, and uh, Member Hammondy and Stephanie and James and I are out in the D.C. area, but we are still, um, you know, operating under our full telework orders, and it's just great to be able to have this conversation um, with people from different parts of the country. So thank you again for joining us. Um, but Tim, you left out uh, a key detail. Um, how, <laughs> how did you get your, uh, your training? Did you go to school for, for rail safety? <laughs> In a way, I did go to school. My father was a railroad <laughs> signalman for the Chicago Northwestern, and actually, when you talk about how long have we been involved in railroad safety, mm-hmm. I would answer 43 years, but actually that's incorrect. I'd have to say closer to 50 years because my dad didn't type and my dad was a local chairman for the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen <laughs> and he wrote, he represented men and women that worked as signal personnel. And my dad would use me and my brothers to type his uh briefs and stuff like that. And so at the age of, I can remember at the age of 10 or 11 typing stuff from my father, I got exposed to signal technology and unfortunately some of the bad things workers do and get caught doing while they're working. But Mm. uh, I learned about representing people and caring about them coming home with all their fingers and toes and The, the penalty for making a mistake at work should not be death. It's yeah. one thing I learned from my father. He's like, we all make mistakes, and we want to have rules and regulations that hopefully will protect us in yeah. case we do make a mistake. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so the NTSB, we're going to talk today, like I said, about positive train control, otherwise known as PTC. Um, the NTSB issued its first safety recommendation to implement a technology like positive train control in 1970 following a deadly train collision in Darien, Connecticut. <clears throat> 20 years later, the NTSB included PTC on its first most wanted list. And with the exception of four years following the enactment of rail safe, the Rail Safety Improvement Act of 2008, it's remained on the list to this day. So while it's not a new issue to the board, this is the first podcast that we've done totally dedicated to PTC. So to get us started off, um, can you please give us a brief PTC 101 for those of us who are not rail safety specialists and experts? Well, uh Basically, it can be explained 
as po- positive train control is to take over a train in case an engineer or an operator either is inattentive or unresponsive to his stimuli, like signals and how he's supposed, how he or she's supposed to react to it. And it, it's got four core functions, and they are to prevent train-to-train collisions, to enforce uh, speed limits, to prevent incursions into work zones. And all that means is if there's railroad workers have the track out and working in an area, it's to prevent trains from coming in there and either striking equipment and or workers. And the, the fourth function is to um, monitor the position of all switches so that they don't accidentally take a switch misaligned into a siding or something at a higher speed. So can you give us a little bit of history, either you or Member Hamandy, give us a little bit of history on, on the development of PTC? Railroad systems have already, already, always evolved like the first train systems were high balls. They were just balls attached to poles and they, they strung them up in the air and that told the train that it was okay to pass and go into that area. Then they used, they used lights lit by oil and candles and it, it kept on progressing. They started using relays. And now we're at the point where uh, they've been using computer systems and basically the systems now, there are things called Wayside Interface Unit, WIUs. The, those are devices that are placed in the field near switches and signals so it can relay that information into the system and to operators or dispatchers. And it all gets coordinated or interfaced together. And now there are computer screens in trains that things will have a target, like a red signal will be a target. Mm -hmm. In the past, the only thing we had to protect us, the the only thing that stopped the train was an engineer. Mm -hmm. So what positive train control does, he'll have a a screen, and if a red signal's a target, he'll get a warning on the screen, like, hey, you've got a red signal coming up, your, your speed's okay, but you have to reduce and be prepared to stop within so much time. A clock will tick down. He'll have an audio uh, uh, response to. And if the engineer or operator does not take action, these audio uh, sounds will get louder and things will flash on the screen like, hey, you've got to take action because you know, you're going too fast. You can't stop in time. And if finally, if there's no response, the system will start to slow the train so it stops before the system and that, and it will come to a complete stop. You know, if the engineer, for whatever reasons, for his inaction or incapacitation tries to take over, it's not going to let him. It's going to bring him to a stop. And then he's got to reset the system. He's got to talk to the dispatcher. But it, it hopefully will prevent a lot of uh, accidents that the board has had where people have had microsleeps or due to sleep apnea, they fall asleep mm-hmm. or, or just being incapacitated. You know, many strokes, heart attacks, things like that. While not, not common, it's to prevent trains from having these type of accidents. And I'll let Member Hamanty talk about the accidents Yeah, I mean, for the accidents we've conducted, uh, 
accident investigations on 154 PTC preventable accidents since 1969, since the Darien, Connecticut accident that you referenced that occurred in August of 1969. And, um, you know, 154 accidents later, 305 people died as a result of those accidents and uh, 6,883 people uh, were injured. And so we ha- we, you know, maintain a list of those 154 accidents and they include big accidents. You mentioned um, the Back Bay accident in Boston, Massachusetts. It was December 12th, 1990. And um, an Amtrak train uh, entered a curve at excessive speed and uh, uh, the train derailed and hit an MBTA commuter train. Um, and uh, 453 people were injured in that accident. And then you have other accidents like Chase, Maryland in 1987, where a marijuana-impaired engineer uh, failed to stop at a signal, if, you know, to simplify it, and, and um, uh, went into an Amtrak train that was traveling at 120 miles per hour, and that killed 94 people and injured 174 others. You know, others are, you know, McDonough, Texas, Graniteville, South Carolina, Chatsworth, California, which Tim uh, was at, Spite and Dival in New York, uh, Philly, that was the Amtrak 188 accident, and of course, DuPont, Washington. So there have been a no- number of accidents uh, and a number of fatalities and injuries. And we've been advocating for PTC implementation for 51 years now, over 51 years. Mm -hmm. And when, at what point um, did legislation come into play on this and and regulations? Well, the legislation itself was was enacted in uh, 2008, um, October of 2008. And uh, it really started well before then, I think the FRA sort of um, passed on PTC implementation and enacted or implemented a final rule, which just issued performance standards in the late 90s on PTC. Mm-hmm. Then the Railroad Safety Advisory Committee, who I'm sure Tim was active on uh, at the time, had sent the Hill Congress a number of reports of PTC preventable accidents, because you have to remember, we only uh, a- we only investigate certain accidents. FRA mm-hmm. has to uh, uh, investigate all the other accidents. So mm-hmm. there were a number of others, and I, I remember a report coming to the Hill with RSAC, that's the Rail Safety Advisory Committee, estimating 2,000-something accidents that would have been prevented had PTC been implemented. And so there were a number of things coming to Congress. And I think really, uh, well, I know what really pushed it, uh, pushed the issue was uh, after the Graniteville, South Carolina accident that we investigated, uh, the uh, parents of the locomotive engineer that was killed in the uh, derailment uh, from chlorine gas inhalation had come in to meet with Congressman Oberstar at the time, who had just become chairman of the Transportation Committee, Mm -hmm. and urged him uh, 
to implement NTSB recommendations on rail safety, many of which could have saved uh, Chris Sealing's life. Uh, mm-hmm. They advocated not just for PTC, but for emergency escape breathing apparatus, which was also an NTSB recommendation for addressing dark territory. And so uh, we 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 decided right after that meeting, Congressman Obistar said, "Well, that's we're going to make." rail safety, our first priority when we take over the House and he becomes chairman. And that happened maybe a couple weeks later, about a month later. Mm-hmm. And so it was January 30th. We scheduled the first two-day hearing on uh, reauthorization of the Federal Railroad Safety Program. And then we had a, ser- a series of hearings over the year focused on uh, different aspects of rail safety, track safety, uh, fatigue, human factors, and um, you know they they the NTSB was at a lot of them, uh, including a field hearing we held in San Antonio, Texas, w- where we focused on the uh, accident we investigated, also PTC preventable, which was the McDonough, t- Texas accident, and that involved uh, fatigue. And so from there, you know, the House in 2007 had moved legislation to mandate PTC. The mm-hmm. Senate moved it in, uh, in uh, about June of 2018. And we were in House and Senate negotiations uh, when the Chatsworth accident had occurred. And so with those, uh, there were there were there was an d- original deadline that was set and then that was extended. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the original deadline was December 31st, 2015, Mm -hmm. and it was extended in a PTC extension bill, which uh, uh, was part of another bill that passed. And um, it had extended the deadline to December 31st, 2018, with an authorization for the secretary to extend it an additional two years to December 31st, 2020. Um, So the, the... there, there was in total two extensions, one of which was provided by Congress, the other of which was enabled by Congress. Right. Member Hamidi, in, um, in 2019, which marked the 50th anniversary of Darien, you um, participated in a press conference to really call attention to just the state of PTC implementation at that time. And you had um, announced that you were also meeting with all of the while you were hoping to meet with all of the railroads um, that were uh, required to implement it. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your meetings with uh, the railroads at that time and um, just how, how you felt about their implementation at that point and whether, you know, how, if you're optimistic about the deadline as it approaches in just a couple weeks? Yeah, um, you know, I, I made it a point that when I came to the NTSB, I wanted to see uh, PTC uh, to implementation. So I, I wanted it as my most wanted list issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I I decided as part of that that I would try to visit all the railroads that were required to implement PTC, which is now 41. It was 42. One was exempt from the PTC requirements. Um, so 
I had visited some freight railroads, some commuter railroads. The freights were obviously at the time that I visited much farther along and still are uh, than the commuter railroads. And uh, they were all, you know, welcoming and talked about some of the challenges they faced and talked about their commitment to implementing PTC. Uh, I thought, I think some always anticipated there would be another extension. And I told them very clearly there would not be one and I'd be very vocal about it. So um, as far as implementation, though, I mean, I think part of the most, I think something that's really frustrating and, and it is, you know, FR, Federal Railroad Administration is compliant with the mandate, but it's frustrating that they they post um the status of implementation on their website on a quarterly basis. Well, wait, the railroads have to submit it on a quarterly basis, and then the FRA publishes it 45 days after that. So it's mm. always late what you're mm-hmm, looking sure. at. And it's frustrating because you don't really know what's going on re- real time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they they updated the system, I guess, within the last few days. And as of December 3rd, 2020, they, they still show uh, that they, they still have a long way to go in, in some areas. You know, there are six areas that the railroads have to comply with in order to be uh, fully implemented. Their locomotives have to be fully equipped. They've done that. Okay. Track segments have to be completed. Done. Training completed. The commuter railroads still have some training that they have to complete. Mm-hmm. They have to have their uh, system safety certified by the FRA, which in the FRA's own wor- words, you know, could take up to six months. But they have, you know, they can be conditionally certified, but, um, you know, they have they have a little bit of ways to go there. Uh, they have to be in revenue service demonstration on a majority of the rail lines. That's pretty good. But interoperability is really where they're suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are, say, Amtrak, you know, Amtrak put out a press release, I think about a year ago, which says we're fully implemented with PTC. If you really read the press release, it was on the property they own. And that's sure. where they're required to implement, which mm. is maybe what, 800 miles, you know, so if you count, and that's at the most, right, if you count some of the mileage outside of the Northeast Quarter, but, you know, so, uh, you know, they still have to make sure that when their trains are operating on BNSF or UP or any other freight railroad out there, mm. um, that, or even anybody who owns freight rail track out there, uh, that they that their train can speak to their system and other trains, that they can communicate. Sure. And so that that railroad knows they're on the line, or the Amtrak train knows another somebody else is on the line, and you know, without that, it's not functional. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's called interoperability. So right now, the Class 1 railroads are about 96% complete on interoperability. Amtrak's about 53%. Uh, commuter railroads are at about 88%. And then some of the uh, smaller uh, railroads are at about 88%. So they still have some ways to go there, certainly on the Amtrak uh, uh, areas where they have to make sure they're interoperable. Sure, Tim. Uh, one thing I'd like to add to that issue about interoperability, 
A good example of the problems that the railroads faced was the DuPont accident out in Washington because a contractor maintained a signal system. One railroad supplied the personnel to operate the train and another railroad controlled the back office or dispatching uh, software and hardware. So, you know, people think interoperability, they think two, two different entities. In this case, there's three just to move a train. And you have to get all those together. The testing has to be done together. Everything has got to be vetted to a very high degree. With that accident, there were people reporting like, well, PTC was installed, but it wasn't turned on. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't accurate. It, PTC was installed in phases, but the testing was not completed. The, the last thing you want to do is turn on a system before you know it's safe and that it's going to function properly. Mm-hmm. What One phrase that they use a lot in the signal industry is that the system function is designed and intended. Well, you don't deploy it until you know that for a fact. So mm-hmm. reports that the system wasn't turned on were inaccurate, and we spoke to that in our report. But interoperability is an extremely complex process, and as, as Member Hamandi said, some of the updates sounded uh, like more had been done when they were focusing mainly on what they control and not mm-hmm. what they don't control, which is anybody that comes onto their railroad. Now, the rule does allow unequipped trains to operate in, when these systems will be deployed, but that's mainly for a train that whose system goes down while they're out there. Because mm-hmm. what, what do you do? Stop the entire system until you can get a rescue train out there to get that train out of there? You've got to let that train move. But there's layers of safety that are written into the regulations and, and to the rule itself in order to hopefully... Um, deal with any failure or inner system failure that may happen. I want to ask a question. I know it's kind of taking a step back a little bit, but I'm just curious. Um, how many miles of rail track is there that needs to, that is required to have, you know, be PTC ready? So there's about 150,000 track miles in the United States, route miles in the United States, or track miles in the United States. And it's about 57,000 that are required to be implemented with PTC. The freight railroads will say, because of how they had to implement it, will actually be more than that. We don't really know that, but we know that it's 57,000. I will say... There are areas where there won't be PTC. I think the railroads like to say, well, those are low density areas. People are still at risk. And, you know, one I like to remind people of is, you know, there's always this discussion of Yucca Mountain and where we're going to put nuclear waste. Every every so often it comes up in the House and Senate about, um, uh, about the Caliente line which is the line, the rail line, which would go to Yucca Mountain. PTC doesn't apply to nuclear waste lines. It applies to passenger uh, lines where there's passenger traffic Mm -hmm. and lines where there's toxic by inhalation hazardous materials. The railroads have made very clear in numerous presentations that it doesn't apply to nuclear waste lines. And I mean, there's not a lot of them, but it's still the risk is there. And the risk for rail workers, you know, is still present on the other lines where PTC is not enabled. 
Sure. Tim, you mentioned um, also the the equipment for, you know, that is required for for PTC and thinking of the the cars themselves. um, You know, we've been asking for this technology for several decades. Is it equipment that's retrofitted? Are the railroads buying new equipment? Are they doing both? I'm just curious as to kind of what what preparing your your actual train uh, looks like. It's a combination of both. Um, like I, I referenced earlier about wayside interface units, that, that takes information from a device in the field and relays it back to within the system to in order to operate the system. And that's something new. You know, it's something that they put so it can communicate with the system. But the device that they're talking about the status be the switch, the switch is already there. You know, it's a power switch or a hand throw switch. The wayside interface unit just says, is it normal? Is it reverse or is it neither? And it supplies that information to the system. Um, Same with signals. Signals were out there. It has to tell the status of the signals. Um, so uh, the, the short answer would be it's a combination of both. But part of the problem was th- this positive train control is heavily reliant on communications, on comm, be it radio communications between the various like trains. You want to prevent a, a head-on collision, each, each engine has to basically be a target and you don't want those two targets to come together. So they're constantly talking to each other um, and they're relaying that information, not just to each other train, but also to the dispatch centers. So they know where the trains are at, things like that. You, you know, you have to know instantly is a switch normal or reverse when they're lining trains like that. You have to know in dark territory, as member Hamadi referenced to, um, you want to monitor switches in dark territory. They never did that. And they did that because the accident she referred, referred to where they, they cracked some chlorine cars. Well, so now you had to install these wayside interface units. You had to put detector devices on the actual switches in order to say if they're normal reverse or neither. And so there was a lot of installation of that. But there were also problems that were specific to uh, basic areas in the country, and one of them being like out west. The comm's not real good when you go through mountains and you go through tunnels and things like that, and you're out mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Is anyone who's traveled with their cell, cell phone right. will tell you, hey, I can't, get a, I can't get a signal. Well, you sure. can't have that if you're operating positive train control. You don't ever want to lose your comm because then you've basically lost your trains. So they had to they had to put up. I believe I believe when Jeff Young uh, testified at a positive train control hearing we held at the NTSB after the Chatsworth accident, if I remember correctly, Jeff said UP alone had to construct about two thousand microwave towers in order to get it robust enough so that communication would be uh, adequate for the system to work. Well, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to build 2,000 railroad towers. You can (laughs) say that and you can actually, you can give the money for it, but you may not have the manpower for the people to do it, you know. So you've got to deal with that. Now on the East Coast and even in the Midwest where I'm from in Chicago, you've got another issue. You've got tons of people using all kinds of the 
airwaves and stuff, and a lot of the uh -huh. signals are close in frequencies, and there's issues with that. But also, you've got the commuter trains and tunnels in the Northeast and in the Midwest. Well, radio signals don't work really well going through underground, so you have to install repeaters down in the tunnels. It was a massive undertaking, and it, it had cost a lot of money, and it took a lot of time to do that. And that's just one issue. That's just the com. As I referenced earlier, railroads have pretty robust signal personnel, but they had to hire people and contract people. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have enough because this was such a big job. If I lost a loved one, it, it wouldn't matter to me how complex it was because I would want, I would want to know why didn't you do it earlier? Because mm -hmm. we were out there saying it decades ago that you needed to do it earlier. And so that's where I think the frustration is. Um, uh, but, you know, hopefully, you know, because of the NTSB's uh, focus and dedication on a single issue, and I have to tell you, to be really focused on something for 50 years mm -hmm, right. is unheard of. Some people right. just move on to something else. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the NTSB time and again kept bringing up, here we are again, mm -hmm. you know, we're at another accident that could be prevented. And, and I, I would ask, you know, Tim, is, is it not frustrating to be at an accident and see the same thing that could have prevented that accident you were at a couple years before that. That's got to be so frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. And the thing is, like, like I said, Chatsworth, California was the first major accident and the second accident I investigated coming to the board. And the member on scene asked me, well, Tim, would positive train control have prevented this accident? I was like, absolutely. If you would add an adductor there, when he went by the red signal, it would have stopped him if he was texting or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's always been technology, and that all ties to what the regula regulators allowed. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they wouldn't have pulled those inductors out, that accident doesn't happen. Or it gets severely mitigated. It's maybe stops short of the impact or side swipes instead of a head-on. Mm -hmm. And... That's really important to understand, but uh, I, I just I just mentioned that because there are systems that are out there, and that's technology that goes back to the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's something new. Sure. But positive train control is much better than inductive train stop because inductive train stop is reactive. Positive train control is 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 uh, you know proactive. Mm -hmm. It stops something before an adverse uh, decision is made, so to speak. One thing I'll point out on on, on this, because um, my criticism isn't just, I don't want it to just be of one sector. You know, I, I, think, I think had Congress provided additional funding for commuter railroads and for Amtrak, that could have been done sooner. Uh, PTC would have been implemented sooner. Certainly the federal funding that was provided to Metrolink is what helped them implement pretty quickly. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one area that could have been addressed. But sure. we, we also talked, uh, Member Hamadi spoke about the Philadelphia overspeed 
were doing 105 miles an hour and a 50 mile an hour curve. DuPont was another overspeed. That was the inaugural run of that uh, train or that that area was just opened up that morning and basically doing 100 miles an hour and a 20 mile an hour curve. Mm -hmm. And and she spoke about frustration for myself. It's not just me. It's all the investigators because you go out there and I can speak from the signal point. You put in inductive train, you you put in positive train control. As soon as he got to where the target of the slower speed was at, the system, the screen would have said, hey, you got a slow order coming up. You need to reduce speed. Mm-hmm. It literally would have said that. It would have printed it on the screen, and there would have been a little uh, gradual arc showing, you know, you've got this much time and this much distance to slow your train down. And in that case, in the Philadelphia accident, the, the engineer was distracted. In DuPont, the engineer thought he had passed the slow uh, area. But either way, with positive train control, it's going to tell them, no, you're not. You've got to slow down. And if you don't, we're going to slow the train down for you. And I, I think going to the accidents that the NTSB investigates, I've seen it happen with members. I've seen it happen with the chairman. I've seen it happen with our investigators. You see this devastation and you know it can be prevented. Mm-hmm. And you've seen it before. We did three overspeed derailments within four years. I mean, we had two in the same area in the Northeast. It gets old really fast. I mean, and people look and they go, oh, well, there's 30 injured and there's three fatal and all that's terrible. Three died. It is terrible. One life's too many. Mm. But what they don't read into it, you've got a couple paralyzations, Mm -hmm. you know, quad, you know, people lose function of all four limbs, sometimes Mm -hmm. two limbs. They lose sight. They lose appendages. Yep. I mean, it's, when they say injuries, these aren't bumps and bruises. These are severe catastrophic injuries. Right. I mean, like Philadelphia, I remember it because it was in the news. A 35-year-old chef was on that tr- train, and he got severely disabled. He, he is he's a paraplegic now, and he was young. He was in his 30s, and his whole life changed in an instant. That accident didn't need to happen. Mm-hmm. What the NS- NTSB has done and their devotion, and like, like we, we talk about, we've been harping on this for 50 years. There's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. We know these can be prevented. And we, we, we do know, as, as the member said, the railroads would not have done this unless Congress mandated it. And I'll tell you why I think they wouldn't have done it. Because none of them could agree on what platform to use for the interoperability. And it was not until they were forced to pick. You know, Congress said, we don't care what you do. Just pick one. Mm-hmm. And here's your timeline. Get together and pick one. And they did, and now you've got it. Otherwise, we'd still be having the same thing going on. Tim, You've mentioned, um, you know, coming to or uh, arriving at an accident investigation and, um, you know, talking to a board member saying PTC could have prevented this. How quickly upon arrival or is it before or is it even uh, before you arrive at an accident that you can determine PTC could have prevented this crash? Well, one thing I'd like to say up front is the NTSB keeps a really open mind. And all of us try not to jump to conclusions. Mm. 
and, and we've been wrong. I mean, there, there have been times when I've gone on an accident and you, you might think, you know, like, like, like uh, Chatsworth's a good example. You know, you got a passenger train and a freight train. I have a bias and I didn't even realize it because I came from a commuter railroad. I just assumed the commuter engineer was paying attention and the freight guy wasn't. Mm. And when I said that, the operations guy said, well, it was the operations guy that wasn't paying attention. It was the, and it was the engineer. Mm-hmm. Member Hamidi, can you tell us about now uh, what the agency has been doing? You mentioned, um, you know, visiting the railroads um, in, in the last, uh, I guess, last year you did that. Um, can you talk about what the agency has been doing leading up to the deadline to raise awareness of PTC? Yeah, I mean, besides uh, besides me visiting prior to COVID, uh, the railroads, we've done a lot of social media. We're posting, we're tweeting every day. We started 154 days out from the accident. We tweet every day one of the accidents that we've investigated that was PTC preventable. Um, and then, you know, we've done a lot with respect to safety blogs I've written. Mm-hmm. We've done um, a lot media-wise. And uh, certainly I've done a number of speeches and even talked to New Jersey Transit this past September to figure out where they were on PTC implementation. So we've done quite a bit uh, to um, keep the focus on PTC. And so the hope is... I still hope that they will be implemented, um, you know, by the deadline that's now just uh, just a few days away, a couple mm-hmm. weeks away, and mm-hmm. uh, so I'm still hopeful. But, uh, you know, even after the deadline, there's still going to be a lot of work that has to be done. You know, there's still going to be GPS failures in areas where there's not PTC that, you know, we're still going to have to be cognizant of that. And PTC only prevents some rail accidents. You know, we still have a number of rail safety issues out there that need to be addressed. It doesn't, PTC is not the end of all rail accidents. It only protects against some accidents. You know, we still have track uh, train accidents caused by track defects and equipment and, you know, uh, the grade crossings, which is a, a, an accident uh, that is increasing mm-hmm. on our rail lines. We're at, I think in 2019, I looked at 2,230 grade crossing incidents, which is the highest it's been in a decade, and 298 fatalities as a result of those incidents, also the highest number in a decade. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of rail safety accidents that we still have to focus on. But uh, in the meantime, you know, it's just um, uh, we just keep plugging away on PTC and all these other safety issues to and try to improve safety for the public and for rail workers. Sure. Member Hamandi, in looking at the at the deadline, as you we've mentioned several times, is you know really just a few few days, few weeks away. What is, if any, is there a penalty for not meeting this um, this deadline date? So the FRA is authorized. The Federal Railroad Administration, which is part of the Department of Transportation, has authority to issue civil penalties, fines. 
uh, for uh, uh, certain for for railroads not taking certain actions, uh, including implementation. Uh, I think there's probably going to be some difficulty for those who are not implemented on the insurance side because mm-hmm. that means that entity is not in compliance with the law. Mm-hmm. So there's some some issues there. Uh, I do want to stress, though, um, you know, because I say that and previously talked about the other train accidents, you know, I always get this question that should people be afraid to train tra- travel by train? Mm. And let let me make clear, uh, no. And, you know, rail is one of the safest modes of transportation. They, you know, there are 36,560 deaths on our nation's roads in a year. Mm-hmm. And on our railways, it's about 890. Now, if, you're, if your loved one is one of that 890, the, the statistics don't matter. And they don't right. matter to the NTSB because one is too many. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, it, it's not unsafe, it's just there. We, we we don't think eight hundred ninety is acceptable. Not even one is. Mm-hmm. Right. And if I may just piggyback on those comments, one one thing I see happening with positive train control is as the systems get deployed and as the confidence gets high and they get the bugs worked out of it, um, not only will they increase the railroads will increase deployment as they see that the systems work and they see the productivity and the safety benefits, which I think are going to be extremely evident once the systems are up and running and functional. I hope that they will deploy additional PTC systems on additional track without having to be mandated again by Congress to do that. And I really think they will because costs will also come down on the hardware, software, and all the equipment as things get in there. But... What I, what I also envision is the current regulation allows accidents uh, below restricted speed. And right now, restricted speed is 20 miles an hour on some railroads and 15 miles on others. But in general, it's 20 miles per hour. They'll be able to bring that down as the system, as they fine tune the systems and probably get it down to what's called coupling speed, which is around five to seven miles per hour. Even still, five to seven, you can get jolted and there can be fatal injuries. It's going to really mitigate with a few crashes they have. I also see them deploying the systems on high rail vehicles and equipment because a lot of workers, they get on the track and they inspect the track. And they do it now by getting absolute track and time authorities to go out, you know, and work, but if they make a mistake and go outside their authority, they can get get hit by a train that has that section of track because the train does not see them. Uh, so, if you make those vehicles a target, just like you would a train, and it moves, you'll be able to see it. So you'll be able to get rid of those accidents. And I see at some point. Uh, I used to get laughed at 20 years ago when I first started talking about this. I felt when GPS systems got down to about a grain of salt, they would inject them into workers and say it was part of, if you wanted to work here, you had to have it. But what they'll probably do is make like an Apple Watch or something, something that size. You'll be required to wear it. It will notify the train of workers on and about the track if they have authority or not. 
But still, if you you know if you dash in front of a train, even with that, it wouldn't prevent you getting killed. Right. But if workers are in the wrong area because they just got the miles post screwed up, or maybe they uh, entered the data wrong in the system, if you've got some type of GPS locator that's tied into the system, you can prevent those types of fatalities also. I see that kind of stuff happening because it'll be a race. You know, it reduces you know the the destruction of equipment and also the loss of life. And the railroads, the railroads will eventually get there to, to get into that on their own. But I, I see some positive things happening once the systems are deployed and successful. Great. Uh, we're getting to the end of our podcast time, and I want to offer our guests an opportunity to share any closing thoughts that they may have before we wrap up. Member Hamandi? Yeah, I think I think I just want to close with this. I I have never seen, and I have worked in the federal government for a long time, Mm -hmm. I have never seen an agency so committed and so dedicated to a single issue to focus on for over five decades and ensure it's implemented to, to, to save lives. And in this case with PTC, if it wasn't for 50 years of NTSB advocacy, and the public only sees our investigations, mm-hmm. but our advocacy for PTC is beyond just investigations. It's what you and you, Leah, and you, Stephanie, do every day talking about how we have to implement PTC out there and speeches and and recipients of our recommendations and to the public in general and doing social media. It's what our media team does with focusing on PTC in with with talk with interviews and reaching out to answer reporters' questions. It's our safety recommendations team uh, focused on closing out those recommendations. So in our government relations team who's dealing with Congress, it's a real team effort. And this was 50 years. And, and I hope that, you know, once it's implemented, even though there will be some residual things that need to be worked out, I hope the agency is proud of their efforts because it is, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for them as the investigators, the team, the SRC and everybody else, uh, PTC would not have ever been implemented. And it will save lives. And uh, I just want to thank, you know, all the agency personnel for really just their commitment and dedication to safety. Great. Thanks for that. And Tim, do you have any final thoughts? I, I would just like to say I totally concur with Member Hamadi uh, with her comments there. I was flattered when I applied for this job that they were even thinking of considering me to be hired here because the brand had such a good name and a good reputation. And I knew that as a third-party investigator because I helped with investigations prior to coming to the board. And... I was amazed when I got here 13 years ago, and I'm still amazed today at the dedication and commitment of everyone, not just the investigators. It's like everyone that the member mentioned, but I've never seen people this dedicated to safety. And that's one reason I came here, because I promised my mom when I hired on the railroad that I wouldn't get killed and I wouldn't get hurt. And I, I really hoped I didn't, wouldn't ever go against that word. And 
the things that the NTSB have done and are continuing to do make that easier for workers out in the field to come home every day with their fingers and toes and not lost, losing their lives. But one thing I would just like to close with, I hope that PTC is so successful that it literally puts me out of business. Mm-hmm. None would make me happier than losing my job because there'd be no need for me to investigate anything. Yeah. And people have said that to me. I mean, the railroad people have said, well, if these systems work, you're not going to have a job. I'm like, I'll sign up today. Yeah. I had a job before I came here. I can go back to that job. But if it means that I don't have to go to another crash where 53 people are dead and a half dozen are killed or, excuse me, are injured, mm-hmm. I don't want to see that. We talked about frustration earlier. So I, I hope these systems are so successful that there's no need for us anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's all I'd like to say. And I, I appreciate the efforts of all the people that are here, and even most people that are here have come from government, like like Member Hominy said. I mean, they were they were very motivated prior to coming here, but they saw this as the next step, the step to really make an impact and make a difference. Mm-hmm. So thanks, thanks for inviting me, and I really appreciate it and be, being part of this webcast. Great, thanks, Stephanie. Do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up? I don't think that I could say anything better than what member Hamadi and Tim have offered. And I too am just um, appreciative of the the men and women, the investigative teams that go out and really do um, and the members that have to go on scene and again, see over and over again, a crash that, you know, at the end, you're going to say this could have been prevented by a technology that the agency has been investigating for five decades. Um, just appreciate all the hard work and the dedication of of the staff um, just carrying this for so long. Yeah, and I will just uh, also concur with with everything that's been said. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to have you both on as guests, Member Hamidi, to have you back, and Tim for the first time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Stephanie, my co-host, and thank you, James, for producing us and making us sound amazing. I want to wish all of our listeners a happy and safe holiday and a happy and safe new year, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.